Welcome to Personal Landscapes. I'm your host, Brian Murdoch. You can find links for today's episode and other conversations on Books About Place at ryanmurdoch.com. Louisa Wa lived in a village in the far west of Mongolia and wrote a remarkable book about her experience. In this harsh and stunningly beautiful landscape, villagers lived on mutton, dairy products, and vodka and met incredible hardships with smiles and laughter. This is a podcast I've been looking forward to since the beginning. I spent a month in Mongolia in 2002, and it remains the most unforgettable place I've ever been. I loved its barren landscapes and its tough, resourceful people. The freedom of the open steppe and the friendships I made there stayed with me in a way that other places never did. I've never stopped dreaming of going back. Louisa is the author of Hearing Birds Fly, A Nomadic Year in Mongolia, and two other books. Her work has appeared in The Independent, The Guardian, The New Statesman, and the BBC World Service. In addition to being a gifted writer, she's also an international conflict management and peacebuilding consultant, with more than a decade of experience in Central and West Africa and the Middle East. We spoke about life at the edge of Mongolia, the nomadic cycle, and how aloneness teaches us about ourselves. Your book is about a nomadic year in the far west of Mongolia, but you actually lived in Ulaanbaatar for quite a long time before you went to the countryside. So what was the city like at that time? I remember when I got there that one of my biggest impressions was that there were virtually no cars. And so you didn't have to bother looking left or right when you crossed the street. And during the two years that I was in UB, as as we called it, the volume of traffic increased to the point that by the time I left, you did have to look left and right. It sort of had everything and nothing to recommend it. It was in a bowl surrounded by mountains. So the view is beautiful, but the pollution from coal fires just sat over the city. The average winter temperature was minus 23 and what mm-hmm. I learned was that, you know, once it hits minus 18, it makes absolutely no difference what the temperature is because it's just bloody cold. They <laughs> used to turn all the hot water off during the summer for six weeks. And all the central heating was totally centrally controlled. So you had no control over how hot or cold your flat was, depended on, um, you know, how well it was insulated. And there was a Japanese hotel in town that everybody went to in the winter because it had baths as big as very small swimming pools. So I remember one year my mum came to Mongolia to visit me and we went to the desert together and we went to this Japanese hotel and drank a bottle of wine and scrubbed off in this, in the, in these baths. And I just remember lying there, probably quite sozzled and just thinking, this is as luxurious as it gets. Because mm. after having been scraping around in the desert, it was so wonderful. And I think that's what I did like about Ulaanbaatar. You got a bit of luxury. When you went to the supermarket, there was plenty of food, but a lot of it was the same basic items. So when you found blue cheese or some decent coffee, you pounced on it. And invariably, when you went back the week after, it wasn't there because the container had finished or somebody else had bought it. So you just learned to appreciate what was there. And um, 
And one of the great events in the whole two years I was in UB was, first of all, the ice festival, because they had an ice festival where they yeah. made beautiful, beautiful sculptures. Some of them were enormous, and we walked around them and through them and admired them for hours on end. And the other one was when the Russian Dwarf Circus came to town. <laughs> and and that was, it was very bizarre because it was, yeah, you know, short people, acrobats and performers, no animals. And the level of excitement in UB when this circus came to town was so tangible. We all went, I think I went two or three times. We all talked about it and we all laughed about how much we talked about it. The last time I went to the, the Dwarf Circus, I remember in the interval watching the performers having their photographs taken with Mongolian families. And Mongolian families had a, a very particular way of taking photographs. They would stand very straight and look very stern. And I just remember this one woman with a cigarette in her mouth and she had lines over her face and she looked tired and sad and utterly, utterly pissed off. And somehow the photograph of them all together, it was very funny. It was also very poignant. And I just thought, you've been around all these kind of old Russian capitals and out of the way places. You don't want to be here. And I'm so happy that you're here. And so the juxtaposition really hit me. So, you know, that's all sort of um, a bit random. But UB was very random. And I guess that's what I also loved about yeah. it. We got a really good description in your book. You say um, it held the terse atmosphere of another destitute Soviet metropolis with its lofty theaters, parliaments, and cultural places, its vacant stores, and hideous army of scarred apartment blocks. But it was as though the city had been accidentally built for a much larger population who had suddenly succumbed to a radical change of heart and fled to live out their lives as herders on the steppe. I really remember that abrupt transition from city to countryside, those gare suburbs, you know, with their wooden palisades, and then this vast emptiness all around, like from looking from outside the city towards it, it really felt like it didn't belong there. Yeah. And then when you left it, it was as though you went through a portal. Hmm. And that's another amazing thing about the country that I think has probably changed to some extent, but you just left and you went into this kind of purity of air and I've never seen skies like I have in Mongolia, these enormous skies that would just envelop you. So you felt in a way that you were walking into the ocean and you could just go half an hour, 15 minutes away. And you just felt as though you were, you know, miles and miles and miles from the city. And it was very quiet and there was just so much space. My eyes felt very rested when I was there. And I remember thinking numerous times, this is why I came to Mongolia, because I there was just something inside me that had really kind of needed to see massive space, and massive space was worth traveling for. And I've never seen views like that. It's because it's a high plateau, so it's very interrupted. It's yeah. uninterrupted as well, but it is absolutely magnificent. And that sense of freedom too, like you, the roads run out very quickly, not, not too far away from the capital, and then you just take a random Jeep track and point to where you wanted to go on the horizon. And if the track veers off somewhere else, you you look for another track, you know, and, and try to meet up with that. And I remember driving across there and you'd run into um, some guy on a camel that would just come out of nowhere and ask him, you know, how do you get to this random landmark that, that we've picked that we're directing ourselves to? And half the time he wouldn't know. You should just, it's just all guesswork. Mm -hmm. And I remember being lost for much of the time and it, it was fantastic because <laughs> 
what you're at there to experience is all around you, you know? So it didn't really matter where you were. The irony about that is that that huge space that we wanted to go into and explore is also, it's a bit of a cage for a lot of people in Mongolia because it was a very difficult country to get out of. And people mm. who wanted was this to a, was this for political reasons or no? Or I don't think it was not not having the money to travel. Yeah, or? I think it. Was, I don't think it was so much for political reasons. It was because it was difficult to leave because the terrain was so enormous. And where would you go? You had China one side, Russia the other, and most people wanted to go to the west, but the west was so far away. You had to have the means to go. So. I think that's an irony, isn't it? That, you know, for us, it's a huge space to explore because it's all about being able to leave. Yeah. And it, well, your book deals will talks a great deal about that as well. Uh, what it's like to remain in a place like this. So the village you chose, Sengel, uh, where is it and why did you choose it of all the places you could have gone? I think if I was more romantic, I would say that Sengel chose me. But um, I think the answer is a bit more prosaic than that. I went to live in Mongolia to teach at Gandam Monastery in Ulaanbaatar, which was the big monastery. And I had a freelance job with the BBC World Service. After two years in Ulaanbaatar, where I was very happy most of the time, I got on a train. There was one train line in Mongolia. It was like a cross. You could kind of go up or across. And we, the train got delayed. And I remember looking out at dusk and seeing a camel drinking from a body of water. And it just hit me like a thump in the chest. I thought, that's what I came for. And I haven't really seen very much of it. I'd got caught up in what was going on in UB. So I thought, right, I'm going to go out to the countryside for a year. And I was very kind of clear about it. I just I wrote to the governor of every single IMAG and there were 21 IMAGs in Mongolia and they passed a law in Mongolia saying that every single school had to have English lessons. So I wrote to all these governors and I said, I will come to your school and I will teach English to your students for free if you give me a Mongolian yurt to live in and basic food. I don't need a salary because I knew there wouldn't be anything to spend money on. And I sent these letters, I wrote them by hand, and I sent them to 21 governors. And the governor of Sengal was the only one who replied. And that, my friend, is why I went to Sengal. Wow. And he sent a reply by telex. And it was one line, Dad. and it said, we need a teacher, come to the village, abai. And on the basis of wow. that one line, I went to live in Sengal. And you couldn't have chosen a more remote place, I don't think. No, probably not. I guess that was the irony. Maybe that's why they needed an English teacher. It was the furthest west village in Mongolia. Well, it still is. 2,000 kilometers from Ulaanbaatar. And Sengo, which means um, delight, was in Bainolgi, Aymagal province. And Bainolgi means the rich cradle. So it all sounds very romantic, going to the village of delight in the rich cradle. You know, and it's a, in its own way, it was. It was a very romantic thing to do to set off to this village. But I guess the trajectory of the book was about how unromantic it was and what the actual reality was like. And that's what I wanted to, yeah, that's what I wanted to write about, how it sort of shattered my illusions. And then in its place, other things were created. 
and I had a whole a very different experience from what I expected. So give us a sense of the layout of the village so people can kind of visualize what what it was like where you were living. It wasn't a particularly small village. It had about 900 people living there. Um, it was divided into two parts. The clinic where I stayed when I first arrived was at the center of the village. Then there was one large settlement, a sprawling large settlement. It was all single-story buildings, wooden buildings, where the wood is um, like crenellated with mud. So they use mud to hold the frames together. And then a very similar settlement on the other side. And the thing that it was very beautiful, actually, a river ran through the village. It was on the banks of the river and the river was frozen for almost six months of the year. There were no buildings at all that weren't single story. There was one post office and the post came every week on a Wednesday at 5 to 11, which is a source of great excitement. And there were two telephones. And I still remember when I'd been in Sengel for six months, one day walking across the courtyard of Abai's house and he was the governor, so top dog. And the second phone was in his um, courtyard and the phone rang and I stopped and I remember thinking, that noise, what is it? And it took me a moment to realise that it was a telephone ringing because I hadn't heard a telephone ring for so long and that still makes me smile. That's paradise. Yeah, I, I think actually having turned into a bit of a Luddite myself, it probably is. But I guess, yeah, yeah single was, it was very beautiful. It was very stark. The colours are very strong. Um, and then after the village, the track just continued into the mountains towards the border with Kazakhstan. So it was kind of the end of the line. You mentioned too that in the book that it borders the Russian Republic of Tuva. You'd, you'd written that it was um, once the Mongolian province of Urianhai, but it was claimed by Russia when they began their yes. domination of Mongolia in 1921. So there, I didn't realize it had such close connections between the people. Yes, and I think that's why um, Senga was so interesting, because there were Kazakhs from just over the border there and Tuvan. So it was like a little melting pot. The Halkh Mongolians, who are the majority of people in Mongolia, were actually a minority in the village. The Kazakhs were nominally Muslims. And the Tuvans were um, Buddhists with shamanic adherence. So there was a there was a priest, a, a Muslim imam, and there was a shame, a resident shaman. So it was culturally an extremely rich place, and I think it's really easy to assume that a village on the edge would be quite desolate and barren. But it wasn't. It was incredibly rich. Most people spoke three languages. Mongolians were very, very learned. They read a huge, there were a huge number of journals and magazines that were also posted to the village. You know, it was hard to get stuff through, but people were interested in the outside world and in learning and reading. Education was incredibly important. But because there wasn't electricity there for 11 months of the year, they would turn electricity on in the middle of winter um, to help people not freeze to death. There was no access to television, but there were radios, you know, so people read and listened to the radio. And culturally, it was incredibly rich. Music was very important. Festivals, social occasions were 
were complex, like the social hierarchies there were complex. So there was a huge amount to unravel, which is one of the reasons that it captivated me and kept me there for so long. But how were the relations between these groups, the Mongolians and Kazakhs and Tuvans? Like, did they mix? Did they get along? Um, they got along on a surface level. There were a lot of tensions, and I think that like tensions between many different social groups and and different ethnic groups. It was around power and power struggles, and it was around who was governing the village and whose interests were most important. So I wouldn't say that those relationships were easy and I was very sad to learn years later that there had been I understand a real breakout of violence between different groups in the village and I think that um, you know there's a real there are nationalism has been a real social force in Mongolia and nationalism isn't always a good thing and I think there there are times that it felt like it could become very destructive and there was also a huge stain of alcoholism across the country. And I think anyone who has spent time in Mongolia knows that. And that also can be incredibly destructive. So, Was that a legacy of the Russian period or was that there before? Do you know? I don't know if it's a legacy of the Russian period. I think it's, again, to do with isolation, to do with a very hard landscape, a tough environment, incredibly long winters, and not much for people to do a lot of the time. So I think it's got a lot to do with boredom. You know, it, it's very easy to link it with with Russia and, and that culture. And I think that the majority of Mongolians I met who I talked to about the Russians, they had a different, you know, they had quite a soft relationship with the Russians. I remember someone saying to me, Russia was our big brother. You know, they looked after us, not like the Manchurian occupation was very cruel. So we all look back in history in very particular ways, don't we? And there was a nostalgia in some ways for those times, despite the collective farms and the violations and the religious repression. I think maybe because those things were not being experienced by the generations that I was meeting, they had a more nostalgic, almost romantic view of what had happened. Well, even earlier generations i have assembled a couple of people in ub and, and hired a jeep driver who uh, i got really got along great with and we ended up doing another trip together to the to the gobi as well and we had a great time getting into the vodka bottle and fantastic guy <laughs> but he was he often said that too they were deeply suspicious of china and feared that china might swallow them up or or just rape all the resources and he um when he was younger he did uh he did his military service as a Jeep driver, and this is why he ended up driving a Jeep once uh, once communism fell and the, and the country was uh, – times were quite tough there. But previous to that, he was a painter. I mean, he showed me photos of his exhibits, and um, his wife was an archaeology professor. He had, he had taught in Eastern European universities and traveled all over the place. So talking to him, it sounded like the Russians actually left something. They, mm. they gave them these Jeeps that you find everywhere mm. and, and infrastructure, the central heating in UB, buildings, things like this. And so there was a, a more of a positive view of it, I thought, as well. Yeah, there were legacies there, weren't there? You know, And there were, there were things, kind of material things that people could identify as having been positive and, and lasted. Whereas mm. the joke was, if something broke, it was because it was Chinese. And it was like a yes, natural exactly. joke, you know. <laughs> Remember somebody got a plug or something once and it didn't work. And they said, 
that's because it's Chinese. And I just thought it was funny, but it tells you something also about, again, memory, you know, and how it informs, like, you know, the trajectory of the country and how people view their past and therefore where they are now and, you know, what's going to happen in future. But there is some truth to that too about the products. Like uh, I had a Chinese alarm clock from the uh, from the market there, and it didn't even wake me up once. It failed. <laughs> it failed on first attempt. But I remember, I remember driving across the countryside with this guy Deggy, and he, we encountered a, an American Jeep out there somewhere, and he was so disgusted how how horrible those things were and how useless they were in Mongolia, and that this this Russian Jeep that we had been pounding around in. Uh, one one time, I think the first day I met him, we were driving into the countryside, and the entire engine caught fire. So we're just driving along, and I saw smoke coming out, you know, from from underneath. And I say, "Hey, Deggy, I said there's a bit of smoke there." And he looked at it and jumped out the door. Like wow. he just took his foot off the gas and dove out the door. I thought, "Shit, I guess maybe I better." Yeah. Because there's you know there's three gas tanks and yeah, but he, go, uh, you're in trouble. Oh, the whole engine, the wires, it all melted and fused and. He opened it up, just tore pieces of the car out and threw it over his shoulder. And he rewired the engine with um, <laughs> like a tea kettle plug in about half an hour. Just to, So I can understand why they, they have uh, strong feelings for these Russian products that are so simply made, but that actually work. Uh, absolutely. And I remember when I, the doctor invited me to accompany her from the village to go and visit some patients. And I bunked off from my work at the school. We got on the Jeep and the Jeep just drove straight onto the river because it was winter. And the driver just started driving up river and I was hanging onto the side of the Jeep like that was going to help. And I was just saying like, what has happened? What are you doing? And he said to me, it, it was, I can still remember the line. He said, madam, this is our black road. And of course, the black road is the tarred road. This is our black road and we are going towards Russia. And we just drove up the river. And if there's one scene in my life I would love to have filmed, it would be sitting in that little van driving up the river towards Russia. That would be absolutely amazing. So when um, we're thinking about some of the challenges you faced in adapting to life in this place, especially in this village, several things stand out. One is the food. So I've read that Mongolian food is uh, the worst, the world's worst cuisine. But I, I was telling you before, I quite liked it, especially the tea, the salty tea. But I only had to eat it for a month, and a, a desperation for vegetables must really set in after after much longer than that. So give us a sense of what it was like to eat this every day. It was dire, you know. People in the village would say, "Manachol moena," our food is bad. The food is terrible. I took multivitamins. The only salad I had for nine months was bottled salad from Bulgaria. Um, I lived on tea, bread, flour, and salt. Um, I think there might have been a few onions. I mean, it was just awful. So it was literally fuel. And black tea with salt and a bit of butter in it is really quite disgusting. Oh, I, I loved it too. You get the little globules of fat floating freak. in it and <laughs> the salt. I think it's the saltiness I liked. I took five kilos of cheese with me, jars of jam and coffee. And of course, everyone learned that, you know, the new teacher had all these stocks. So people would come around to visit me and they'd just <laughs> sit there and say, where's the coffee? And I think like, fair enough. If I was you, I would do the same. And I was so begrudging sometimes because I could just <laughs> see these stocks diminishing. And after a couple of months, there's nothing left. And I just kind of live, I just learned to live with it. But 
the the food was the food was harsh. So from what I remember, it's it's mutton, right? So it's I remember there were five varieties of mutton, and they all tasted pretty much the same. Like there were the the booze, the dumplings. There was I like the, I was now it? I those see, were that's good. My one that was my one exception. I absolutely see. Now we're those. fine. Now we're getting to the yeah to the heart of it here. Oily, and, uh, a bit salty, and a nice dumpling. That was because it was it was a variety, and you could make um, noodles as well. There were mutton and noodles. I I like that one quite a lot. And the other. Um, uh, was it hoshel? Is that what it, the kind of a pancake with mutton? Yeah, yeah. That, that was but it's the third all the one. Same, but it's all the same thing, really. It's oh, it all tasted exactly the same. It, it, well, it, that's because it is the same. It's just kind of in different shapes, really. You know, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, depending on how much chunks of fat you get in it. So. And I, and it, you could, you could sometimes get beef. And I remember doing a swap with um, Gerald, who who worked in the school, who was one of the absolutely amazing women who would cook for a hundred students using a just a fire and she we she and i cha- exchanged big cudgels of meat because she had beef that had hardly any fat in it that she thought was disgusting and i had a huge cudgel of mutton which is mainly fat and we both wanted what the other one had and we were both so happy <laughs> so i went home with with like lean fresh beef and she got fatty mutton and i was like Fill your boots, lady. You know, I do not <laughs> want it. So it was a great exchange. That's one of the things I remember most, you know, the, the, just how mutton, everything smelled like and you mutton. you smelled like mutton when you've been living there for a while. Oh, I smelled like, when I went to China from there on the train, and I smelled like mutton for about a week. <laughs> like, people would notice. I'd walk into a place and kind of look around. Like, <laughs> Nobody wants that smell? to and it was me. <laughs> in this, oh, it just pervaded everything. In the summer, you could get um, fish. And the little boys in the village who fished realized that I liked the fish because people didn't want to eat fish because they considered it food for poor people, which I thought was very ironic. So the little boys would bring me lots of fish. And in the summer, people produced taganide, which is white food, which is Mm -hmm. butter and cream and milk and cheese and all sorts of delicious goods. And I would sometimes have grilled fish with fresh butter and salt. And that was unbelievable. And again, it's like my other point about the Japanese bath. Those moments of luxury would sustain you for a long time because you'd think, I'm sitting in this beautiful place. I'm eating fresh fish with butter and it's wonderful. And this is going to last me for a while and it's going to have to because I smell like a sheep. (laughs) But it always surprised me that people didn't eat fish. I remember camping beside um, a lake in yeah, it's just west of Setzerleg, maybe half a day's drive okay. west of Setzerleg in, in Arkhanga, I'm Agen. The My friend Deggy, the driver, he uh, loved fishing, but he didn't eat the fish. He was catching masses of fish out of this lake, and then he'd just throw them to me, and I, we would cook them up. But I saw kids taking massive, you know, like 10, 12 pound uh, pickerel or pike out of that lake with hand lines. They'd just whirl a lure over their head and throw it in and pull it in, and their hands are all scarred, you know, from the, the line and the teeth. I would see a fish like that maybe once a summer in the St. Lawrence when I was a kid. Mm. And mm. This, they were just pulling them out left and right, but nobody seemed interested in eating them. I always thought that was strange. But, you know, cultural norms and the expectations that we grow up with influence us so enormously. You know, I, I, I think sometimes because I, the first thing I have when I get up is a cup of coffee. If I grew up in Morocco, the first thing I'd have when I got up is a cup, of, a glass of tea, because that's what people in Morocco drink. We're all so much more informed and led than we think 
by the cultural expectations. So if you're in a village in Mongolia, villages are generally very conservative communities wherever they are. And most people want to conform. So if most people don't eat fish and say it's for poor people, or they say, and they didn't say this in Mongolia, but if they said it was dirty or polluted, which it certainly wasn't, it was magnificent. Most people won't cross that line. They won't transgress because they want to conform. And I think for me, that that's what's, it's fascinated me all my life, the power of conforming with your community and the kind of huge political implications of that. But it means that also we often, in many circumstances, we massively limit ourselves because what we focus on is what we think people expect us to do, not what is always in our own interests. And I think that's a perfect little example. You know, you have access to really high quality protein that's fresh food because there wasn't a lot of fresh food there. I mean, in Arhanga, it would be a, a bit easier because it's a bit more of an accessible area. But somewhere like Tengel was so remote. You know, we got berries once a year. And fruit, we got access to fruit once a year during the market. But apart from that, 10 months of the year, I had no access to fresh food. So when there was fresh, plentiful protein around, I took all advantage of it. And it's just interesting why other people didn't, you know? I don't think I saw a, a vegetable that entire month I spent there. I don't really honestly don't remember except potatoes. That's the only quasi vegetable. I met um, a doctor, a German doctor on the train out. It's going to um, Beijing. I shared a compartment with this guy and he was a vegetarian. And I don't know how he lived there. Like he had all his own food. He had a cutting board and bread and a knife and he carried powdered milk and mucili and all this stuff. But I'll never forget we were, uh, we're sitting on this train and there was a Chinese man down the compartment and heard there were foreigners. You know, it was quite an empty train and came down and wanted to speak with us in English. And so the German pulled out his phrase book and said, how do I say this phrase? You know, I'm a vegetarian. And the Chinese man told him something. And he said, that means I like vegetables. So the German repeated it diligently. And then he said, yeah, but how do I say this? And the guy said, well, you don't want to say that. That means I don't eat any meat at all. And, and the German said, yes, I don't eat any meat at all. And the Chinese guy sat back and looked at him with deep suspicion for like 30 seconds. And then he poked him in the ribs and said, I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I knew somebody who was a Peace Corps who was a vegetarian in Mongolia, and he actually developed night blindness. Jesus. He just didn't get the vitamins that he needed. I was a vegetarian for a long time. Um, I guess that cured you from living there, yeah. But, but the other thing was, I've, I've never seen animals killed more humanely than in Mongolia, and I was there for the slaughter, which you know I, I wrote about in the book. And yeah. The animals were- Descri- Describe that. That's quite, a, quite an amazing graphic scene. It was thousands and thousands of animals at the beginning of winter after the first snows had fallen who were brought into the village for a slaughter. And the reason it was after the first snows was because most of the houses had a small room attached to the outside, which was like a refrigerator. So when the snow had fallen, people would wait until you know it had frozen into ice. And then these rooms would be brilliant refrigerators for the next five or six months. So all the animals would come in and over the course of about four days, there would be a massive slaughter across the village. And people would cut the faces off the cows when they were dead and hang the masks on posts on the fences. So 
you would walk along the village. And I, I don't honestly know why they did it, because I don't know what to what purpose it was. And I don't think it was a religious thing, but there would be these ghoulish faces of cows on posts up and down the village. And it, it made the whole thing look very sinister. And there was literally a bloodbath during that weekend. And the compound that I was living in, they also slaughtered the horses. And that was very hard to hear because I did hear them because horses are very intelligent and they screamed. And I remembered for a very long time that sound of horses screaming because they knew what was going to happen. You know, whereas sheep are very thick and most of them had no idea. So was this because this would be the food for the winter or is it because if they left them out in pasture, they would just starve? I th- well, it's because it's the food for the winter, but also you want to kill the animals while they're still heavy and fat. So you bring them in, you slaughter them, um, you make sausages with a lot of the meat, you freeze a lot of the meat, you dry a lot of the meat. So by spring, you're actually eating rehydrate, you're eating dried meat that you have to boil for one hour in order to rehydrate it. And that is really disgusting. Um but it provides you with that protein throughout the winter. So you just have um, baths of blood where animals are just taken into the house one at a time and have their throats cut. And at the same time, I think it is the most humane way to kill animals that I have ever seen. And I remember sitting, writing a letter to my mum in the courtyard and a man got off a horse and he had a sheep on his lap on the horse and he got off and he sat a couple of meters away from me. He got his knife out and he cut the sheep's throat. And I looked up and the sheep was bleeding to death and it died very quickly. And I remember thinking, but, you know, that's the way to do it. So it was extremely graphic and I was glad that I saw it because I did. I watched it and it was horrific. But I was interested in everything that went on in the village. So I wanted to also witness that. Well, it's a much more honest as well. You know, yeah. we have such little sense of where our food comes from. We think it comes from the shop and cellophane. And this is the reality. And you're living in this village where that's what you what enables you to survive through these winters. And also people would, um, I remember the, the Cossacks. I'm not sure if this the Tuvans did this as well, but the Cossacks would also bless every single animal before they killed it. And they would thank it for its life. And then they would kill it quickly. And, you know, that's a much more humane way than factory farming. Hmm. That's for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned before that white foods in the summer, this would be the the main food. So the, they live on the meat all, all winter. And then I guess it runs out or the, the, the shift to dairy being the primary component of the diet for the summer is. You is never uh... stop eating meat in Mongolia. But it's just that there's a slight variation. You know, you get, you <laughs> get fresh meat. In spring, if the winter hasn't been too harsh, but then in the summer, you would supplement your diet with this very nice, like ricotta cheese, you know, like nice light cheese. And then more salty cheese again that was kept for a long time. And then there was wonderful yogurt. And then there was vodka that was brewed um, throughout the summer. So, yeah, there was a lot of vodka going on in the summer. Um, and then there was a lot of the fermented horse milk, Irag, and that was really yeah. delicious. It had a kind of low alcohol content. So you'd kind of start late morning, have a couple <laughs> of bowls full, then you'd have another couple with lunch, 
then mm-hmm. by mid-afternoon you're a bit sozzled and the day is just kind of dreamy and slow and <laughs> that's how people got through sort of 18-hour days because they were incredibly busy all summer as well literally making sure the animals grazed moving them along the migration routes making all this food for themselves you know getting stores again picking the berry preparing the felt so you went you you experienced life at a summer pasture with the family which you've described really nicely in the book. I went out for about two months with um, the Tuvan teacher who's, I was living in her courtyard. I went with her family and I lived with them in the yurt out in the, out in the, the hills. Um, yeah. And it, it, it was, it was a very August experience because it was very warm, which was beautiful. The environment was beautiful. I loved camping in the yurt outside. And again, what I hadn't realized was that people worked constantly. It wasn't a holiday. You know, I think I, I, I wrote about shepherding for a bit and I was absolutely hopeless. It was so exhausting. I was young. I was 30. I'm 55 now. Um, I was running around with a 22-year-old. I was completely exhausted. She thought I was an absolute waste of time to be with. Um, we were doing it on foot and we were doing it on horseback. And then we were, um, when the sheep were sheared, we were carding the wool to make the felt, which is a, a wonderful experience. And that was also hard work because you're beating felt, you're rolling felt, you're laying felt out, you're fetching water, you're preparing food. And so I think what that taught me was that, you know, the tasks might be different and the intensity is the same. People work all year because that is the reality of pastoral nomadism. And that is why it hasn't survived in many parts of the world. Mm. Yeah, it's very different from the impression that we have from from reading, you know, that you have plenty of time to lie around and write poetry. Absolutely. Um, I, I didn't have much time. I didn't write any poetry. I made a lot of notes. And you would still swim in the river and, you know, sometimes sit around and drink a bowl of Iraq. But there was a huge amount of work to do and everybody did it. There was there was very little slacking, you know. So what was the life cycle, the annual life cycle in the village during the rest of the time when people weren't out at summer pasture? Like, Was, was everybody in the village a, a nomadic herder? Yes, I think there were a few business people. And I, I, no, again, I find that very interesting. Wherever you go, there are entrepreneurs. So there was a small market. There were a few people who made quite a bit of money, who drove fancy Jeeps, who didn't do, um, you know, didn't live a very nomadic life. There were a few people in the village who couldn't afford to go out in the summer because they didn't have a yurt. All they had was their wooden um, cabin to live in and they would stay in the village and I think that was a real struggle for them because you lose out in a different way there were people who worked in the school a lot of the life in the village revolved around the school because more than a hundred children from outside the village boarded at the school so there were professionals there were some nurses and a couple of doctors at the clinic there were teachers there were traders who would come and go from Kazakhstan and sometimes from Tuva and most people would come into the village for the winter, take their animals out to pastures, and then in the spring they would begin to leave and come back for longer and longer periods, and then the village would empty in the summer. But one of the things that I found, you know, it, that I tracked was that people would go along the same migration routes 
year after year and had these particular places where they would move their animals where there was very good grazing. And that was also, it was interesting how that really hinged on social cooperation. You know, people didn't compete. I don't remember there ever being any conflicts around land because there was a lot of space, because there was sufficient resources, because it wasn't crowded and the land was very managed, was managed very well. So it was really viewed as a collective resource. And again, that's what I mean. It's a comp it's a complex society. It's a rich society where people knew how to negotiate and to dialogue. And there were people who resolved the conflicts, often the religious leaders. And that's how it functioned, despite those cultural tensions, which were not religious tensions, but they were cultural tensions around power by different groups within the community. You also wrote about the interactions between couples, and you said that men and women have their staunch hunter-gatherer roles and rarely seem to deviate from what's expected of them. But I never saw a couple holding hands, linking arms, even kissing each other hello. Unless they were parting for a long time, they didn't even say goodbye, just silently walked away from each other, often without a glance. That must be very different to uh, to try to fit into that as an outsider. Yeah, and I'm very tactile, you know. I mean, I'm I'm like a human Labrador, you know. I I wag my tail a lot, and <laughs> I like to be stroked and have the odd stick thrown for me. Um, <laughs> it was it's a very reserved part of the world. People were very reserved. They didn't display affection. So it was very interesting to observe, and I think I found it difficult because I also missed. You know, I was there on my own. I didn't have anyone with me. I missed physical affection. And I think I wrote about this in the book. There were times I was desperately lonely because even if you're not displaying affection in public, if you have somebody by your side and marriage is there, you know, there were good and bad marriages. I mean, I learned a lot of gossip after a year in the village. I, I knew which men, I knew which of the men were beating their wives. I knew which couples were happier together than others. I knew a lot of that. And it's the same as any society. There were relationships that malfunctioned. I think people maybe had a much less romantic view of what marriage was. Marriage was a partnership where people worked, where roles were prescribed more strongly. And yet, the Tuvan couple that I lived with, they really deviated, you know. The Sansa who did a lot of work in the house. I, I was very sad to learn a few years ago that he had died. Oh, no. And Gansu, mm. who is still teaching English, which I'm very proud about, you know, she went out and earned the money. So again, you will find social deviants. And I guess they're the people I've always been drawn to. So for me, it was beautiful that I lived with them. And they just did what worked for them. And yet most people in most societies will conform again to what's expected. And that includes not showing affection in public. So for a Labrador like me, that was quite tricky. He also said that people don't say thank you when they're given stuff. They just um, they just accept it and give freely when they have something as well. I thought was interesting. I think the thank you was around the idea that if you said thank you when you were given something, it indicated that you had expected the gift. Whereas being given it and you don't say anything, you're simply, I guess it's quite a, in a way, quite a Buddhist thing. You're accepting what has been given as a gift, 
without supplicating yourself or indicating that you wanted something bigger or something smaller or that you deserved it. You're simply taking it in the spirit in which it's presented, which I think is kind of beautiful, actually. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. This brings up another challenge that you experienced. You talked about living with this couple and it's um, just the lack of privacy. Like as everybody living in one space in a gear, the entire family sleeping in the same room and you don't really have anywhere else to go except outside. That must be very difficult, both as an outsider and as an, you know, an introverted person who, who ends up in this place. How did you cope with that? I think it's interesting that you say an introverted person because I'm definitely an introvert. And I guess, you know, all writers have a big streak of being introverted. Otherwise, we wouldn't sit in rooms on our own and write. When I got to the village, I had my own year for a while. So I could retreat to that. And that was very important to me. And I realized it was a real luxury. And then in the winter, I moved into the courtyard with Abai and his family. So it was interesting. I spent the first part of the year with the Tuvan family and the second part of the year with the Kazakh family. And there, there was very little privacy. And that was very hard. You know, people even knew. Remember, the toilet was um, sort of in the fence. So it was half on the street and half in the courtyard. So you had to really make sure the door was shut properly. Otherwise, you were literally peeing in the street. And you can imagine when it snowed and everyone's been using the toilet, you know, there's a whole kind of mountain of stuff that's building up there that you don't want to fall on. So you have to you had to negotiate very private things, you know. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to take a bath privately. And sometimes you just had to do that. And then there was a the whole kind of ritual of everything that was involved in taking a bath. But if you choose to go and live in a village, then you know, you have to find ways to have privacy, which often meant going outside, even though it's extremely cold, or you have to learn to be quiet in a group of people. And I guess that's also one of the skills that I learned there, because mm -hmm. people also had little spheres of privacy around them, even though they were sitting in a room full of other people, you can still be alone. And you can be a lot more lonely, you know, when you're amongst other people than when you're sitting quietly in a corner on your own, because you've decided that you need a bit of quiet, which I do quite a lot of the time. That's very interesting how people who live in such close quarters have to come up with something like this. You know, did you were there introverted people among the Mongolians? Yes, yes, definitely. My little gang, who I wrote about, which is Gansuk, Tuya, and Amira, and me. Um, when we were together, we weren't at all introverted. We were very loud and possibly quite obnoxious. We had a lot of fun together used to share my lipstick and then all go down to the village disco together. And that was just, you know, they really made my time there. But yeah, there were people who really needed to be alone. There, there were people, there were a few people that a lot of people avoided. You know, you have outcasts in every community. You have people who are less light than others. You have people who are very lonely. I knew one woman who had lost her husband many years before and she was still very sad. So again, it, it speaks to a very complex society. And I think people probably don't make the distinctions that we do between introverts and extroverts and those who need their own space because there's a lot more attention to functioning on a daily basis. 
But there are always people who will find time to be alone. And I guess that's also what prayer is about, because prayer was also, you know, it was a big part of life and it was utterly integrated into the fabric of the community. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's very much a luxury belief, I guess. It didn't occur to me, this the idea that a space on your own or a space of your own is is not something that most people have. And you mentioned the just the dealing with daily life and you lived on your own in the beginning. So you've got to, you have to learn how to do things like light a dung fire and um, chopping wood and fetching water and, and things like this. But that must have been quite difficult in the beginning. They are skills that I am very glad I've had and I've, you know, I've used them since. I'm so good at lighting a fire. And that's the other thing. I think that people use materials, the, the resources around them brilliantly. So because it was an area that had very few trees, it was hard to find. You could find wood, but it was hard to find wood. But there was a lot of dung. So the dung was dried. It was another task for the summer. The dung was dried all summer, great mountains of it. And when it was very, very dry, it would also have lots of dried hairs in it and they would they would ignite immediately. Candle wax. You know, I learned a lot of tricks there about lighting fires. And I learned to haul water, which is very tedious and was generally the task that was left to women. And I did that 14 litres of water several times a day from the river. And it was a task that I grew to utterly loathe, but I had to do it. And I'm glad I did it because I learned there what it was like to live, you know, in a basic way. And I think that that has, it was a good lesson to learn quite early on. And it was very instructive for the rest of my life. And for, for people who don't understand the, the wintertime, this is still the water has to come from the river. So you're having to hack it out of the ice to get to make a hole in the river to get the water in the first place. When I wanted to have a bath, I remember writing an entire section about this. Take an axe down to the river, hack a hole through the ice, fill two buckets with either freezing cold water with bits of ice in them, all 14 litres of water back to my hut, light a fire, the wood would tend to be frozen, drip candle wax onto frozen wood and use any dung that was left or bits of paper, get the fire going, put the water onto a pot, onto a stove and heat pots of water to pour into an old tin bath that leaked, get into the bath, as quickly as possible, but take your clothes off at the very last moment because it's now minus 24 degrees outside. Get in the bath, wash yourself very, like very quickly. Stand up, strip wash, splash, splash, out, dry yourself, get dressed into nice clean clothes that you've put aside there next to the stove to be warm. Then put all the dirty clothes in the bath Wash them in your dirty water. Rinse them because you've got more water boiling on the stove. Take the clothes outside and wring them out and then freeze dry them outside because that makes them easier then to dry inside. And then finally, take the, um, the bath water outside and throw it somewhere where it won't pollute the courtyard. And all of that was to have a bath and wash your clothes. 
and it will never be so hard again for the rest of my life. And I am glad. And I'm glad I did it, but it was not easy. So how often would you have to do this? Like what's how often would you, would the luxury of a bath show up in your life? I tried to have a bath every week because otherwise it was quite disgusting and I would kind of despise my own smell. You don't get very smelly when it's that cold, but you would get very dusty and we would sometimes get a delivery of coal and handling coal, handling wood, handling dung, going to the river. Sometimes you get freezing cold at the river and sometimes you would have to have a bath to get warm. But I can honestly say that when, apart from having a bath, I don't think I ever took ever took all my clothes off well the places are, are unheated as well there's if people don't you have a fire if you're lucky and that's it and it's not all the time i'm sure well you do but the wooden houses were known as which means a hot house because they have the stove in the middle of the house and in fact the houses would become very very hot really so you wouldn't have like the wind whistling through the cracks in the wood or anything no they were very well insulated the the yurts i think were a bit more problematic depending mm. on how well they were insulated with the um with the felt but the actual wooden houses were they were very very warm in the winter my room i was in a room and that was pretty drafty so that was quite cold i was warmer when i lived in a yurt but uh, the the well maintained cabins, which again was about how much money people had, they were actually quite comfortable in the winter. So another thing you mentioned um, earlier was uh, communication, and you wrote about how important the once a week mail service was when living in such a remote place, and how terrible it it felt to walk away empty handed. I think generations who grew up with smartphones and internet will never understand you know what it was like to get a letter in the post, especially when living abroad. You know how exciting that was and the urge to tear it open versus take it back and read it in a quiet place and and how you read the same letter over and over again and kind of savor every line and and uh, read between the lines it's a, it's a different world huh yes and um i used to write a a monthly column for a magazine in the uk called the new internationalist and i would hand write this letter about life in the village and then I would go to the post office and I would post it and as it traveled it would invariably pass with the letter from the magazine saying dear Louisa where the hell is your column for this month and it always arrived on time because the Mongolian postal service was so brilliant so that was one thing I was still able to be a columnist from there um Getting the letter was extraordinary. Not getting it would make my heart break a little bit. And I, I think, you know, it makes me sound, it, it probably makes me sound really old now, but I feel so glad that I traveled when you could be that cut off because, and I think I said this when we exchanged before we arranged to have this call. I don't think that all travel is now sanitized. But it does feel like a lot of it is. It does feel a lot, a lot of it. You can, you can Snapchat it and you can Telegram it and you can Instagram it. And it's wonderful that you can share. And I think that the democratization of travel is, is it's a beautiful thing because travel simply used to be, well, it used just to be rich old men who traveled. And then it became, you know, rich, generally rich white people and then it just became rich people and now it is much more democratic and that can only be a good thing 
And I guess the flip side to that is it feels now like it's harder to go somewhere and really have the grit of traveling on your own. And I'm very glad that I did it when it was tougher and when you had to go further inside yourself because, you know, it was very easy for me at the end of a year there when I did quite a lot of interviews after I wrote my book to say, oh, it was amazing. It was wonderful. And I kind of go back to the way that we remember things. I don't remember the difficult times when I cried my eyes out and when I hated the village the way I remember the beautiful parts of it. And that is how we survive life. I've lived in other parts of the world that are even more challenging. I lived in Gaza for a year and a half. I lived in the Central African Republic during a major rebellion. I went to Mali and I did a lot of work in Timbuktu. I have worked a lot of my, I've lived and worked a lot of my life in, in quite extreme environments because I'm attracted to them. And I think in terms of traveling for for leisure, it is a very different experience now. And I, I, I mean, maybe I'm being nostalgic. It feels like something has been lost. I think definitely, I completely agree it has been because it, you can't be cut off like you could back then, at least not not without doing so deliberately. So you're forced to be alone with your own thoughts and you're forced to confront these places that you're surrounded by. I, I remember my first big trip to... Central America, if I could have hopped on Skype and talked to somebody back home in those first weeks, you know, and you're so miserable and can't speak the language, don't know what's happening around you, and you're totally alone, that would have been a lifeline. But you don't have that outlet. So you have to just cope with the loneliness and push through it and learn something. Also, there's there's no um we kind of have a sense of what everything is now. Like you can look on your phone and know exactly I have to take a left turn down here and that hotel is over there. And it's still going to be there when I get there because somebody else just posted about it a week ago. It's not like using a dusty old book that, you know, you go to a place and it may not match the map anymore. And you, you kind of have an idea of where some cheap lodgings might be found, but uh, you, you kind of have to ask around. You, you meet other travelers maybe and say, well, what did you see, you know, uh, three or four days back that way and exchange tips and stuff. But and you, you drop off a map in the in the way that you can't anymore. This is very different than now. I can remember when I when I first went to Mongolia, it was 2002, and the first internet cafe had just mm-hmm. arrived in Ubi. But I mean, it wasn't really very useful. Mm-hmm. Like I would take a book, and it would take maybe 20 minutes to open my inbox. And so you'd log in and just read a book, and then <laughs> it, it, you'd be just long enough to send a message, you know send a message back home or whatever and say, hey, I'm going to the desert for a couple of weeks and I'll try to message you when I come back. And nobody expected to hear from you. I was just I was just thinking that um my last experience like that was about 10 years ago. I went to Burma. I know there's a big debate about whether to say Burma or Myanmar, but um as the generals change the name of the country without consulting the people, I stick with Burma. And when I went there, there was very, very little internet. And if you wanted to get a SIM card or anything, it was very, very expensive. So I thought I'm going to use this opportunity. And I spent a month in Burma without an internet connection. So I talked to lots of people and wrote down phone numbers and managed perfectly well, explored the country, went to the north. I went to where um, Orwell-based Burmese days I went right up to the Chinese border and 
I ha- I had a, an extraordinary time there. But I guess my point is that when I left after a month and I flew back to Bangkok, I stayed in a hotel that had a computer in the kind of main living room. And I walked up to that computer. And when I came to, I was logging on. And I just thought, yeah. I did that without even thinking. Mm-hmm. I saw a computer. I thought, great, I'll check my emails. And I'd done perfectly well without them for a month. And I still remind myself about that because it did enrich my experience. And it is useful and it is great, you know, and I need to contact my partner and I'm away and all the rest of it. But I also went to Ladakh at the end of January this year for three weeks and I had barely any internet connection because I was doing a high altitude trek. And the relief of not having to be in touch with the outside world for most of the time, it was something for someone like me and I suspect for you, it was something quite beautiful because then it's you, yeah. you know, and then your mind is just kind of able to grow a bit. Quieter. And you're fully in that place. You're not half somewhere else or or half back home. The last time I experienced that would have been, yeah, around maybe close to 10 years ago as well in the Sahara. We went on a expedition to look for prehistoric rock art, uh, once from Sudan up to the border region of um, uh, Libya, Egypt, and Sudan. And then once uh, oh, in the wow. Tibestian Chad as well. So you're you're out there for a month. That's the longest I've gone without bathing as well. So <laughs> a month on those trips because just not enough water. And that was hot. Yeah, right? but I mean, I bet you were really no. Thinking. I don't. Well, I didn't notice, but it evaporates so quickly, you know, because <laughs> you don't even really sweat. I don't remember very rarely ever because it's so dry. Yeah, it was so dry yeah. and hot. But uh, I had wet wipes, like the the packaged wet wipes. One for I think three a day was the ration I gave myself, but. I had those in Ladakh, uh, you know, because I didn't want to get UT. Yeah, but you yeah, you can you can do you a lot with wet wipes, but you really can, yeah, you really. But can. the uh, being out there for a month, I remember leaving the city and going off into the desert, and and that's you're cut off for a month completely, and coming back, and I downloaded my emails at the like we'd you get back and go to a hotel and, and shower for the first time and get a connection, download to to a phone, and then get on the flight to go to go back home and. I remember just messages, hundreds of messages downloading. And I remember looking through these on the plane thinking, Jesus, I don't want to see any of this. Like none of it was important anymore. The first few days are, are a bit odd, you know, when you're, you feel like, oh, what's, what am I missing? But then you immediately forget about it and you're completely fully in the place yeah. where you are. And I, you, there's no desire yeah. to go back to it after. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it really is different, isn't it? It's like makes you realize how distracted. Yeah most of us all most of the time well there's two more things i want to ask you about if that's okay i will come back to this part in a second because that's my final mm-hmm. question but i wanted to ask you um about something we tend not to think about when it comes to travel uh, which is going back it must have been very difficult to go back to england after after your year in Sangle. I mean, what was that like um i remember it was quite horrible actually because i didn't really know what to do with myself and um, my sister lives in Canada, so I went to see her in Canada. And it was winter. And we were outside a bar because I wanted to smoke. And they had one of those Bunsen burners outside. And I got ridiculously angry about it because I just said, like, what is the point of pumping heat into fresh air? 
And I just remember thinking, I'm being very dramatic, but I was so angry about like the decadence of it and the waste of it. And do you realize what it's like in Mongolia where it's like minus 24 and people die every year? And listening to my own voice thinking, God, I sound like I'm really going on. And just thinking, I'm just having like trouble getting back to this. And, um, but I guess the itch that took me to Mongolia just stayed in my system and I'm I you know I thank it for still being there because I've just traveled ever since I've you know I've stayed in places for a long time and now I am as I said at the beginning based on the west coast of Scotland and I'm very happy here and I I love the landscape I live in but I think that coming back it is difficult you know and it's easy to say it's the supermarkets with 18 different types of canned fish and all the rest of it. it. It's also more fundamental than that, isn't it? You know, you've been somewhere and you, or I guess me, you know, I, I struggle to know how to tell my story about it or to know if it mattered. And therefore, like, you know, where's my place in the world? What do I do? And I think that's probably one of the reasons that I wrote about it, because I thought this is what I can do about it. And if I wrote it now, it would be a much more philosophical story. At then, it was much more about the immediacy of what went on every day. It was much more naive. I've read that book since, and I really like the woman in the book. I like her. She's kind of, you know, she's a bit dumb occasionally, but she's there and she's struggling and she cries and she laughs. And, I, and I'm so pleased. I guess the, the thing I love is I, I read her and I like her because she's not mean or nasty to people. She wants to be there and she's up for the adventure. And, you know, I write a blog now. And the, the messages that I get, 95% of the messages are about hearing birds fly. And it came out a long time ago. And so I am incredibly grateful to that little book. I really am. Yeah, you certainly touched on something there. Yeah, something deep. So near the beginning of the book, you said that after your first experience of Mongolia, which was a stop on the Trans-Siberian on your way to China, the few days you spent around UB had more of a mark than had left more of a mark than anywhere else you had ever been. And I could really relate to that. Um, as I said, I spent a month there on a longer trip that took me through Tibet and Xinjiang and down through um Southeast Asia, um, a month in Burma as well back then, some seven countries. But it was that first month in Mongolia that left the strongest impression on me. And that's that I've thought about ever since. So what do you think? Why do you think that is? What is it about Mongolia that's so compelling? I don't fundamentally think that it was Mongolia. I think that what it was was that when I was little, about 10 years old, I had looked in a school atlas and I had seen a map of Central Asia and I had seen Ulaanbaatar on that map. And I had thought in my 10-year-old mind, like, why is there a city in this big nothingness? What is this city in the middle of the earth? And I had decided in a very naive way that I wanted to go there. And I think the reason it made the impression on me was because I got there and I have carried out a very unscientific study many, many times in the years after that 
sitting on a bus or a train. And it, it's less likely to happen now because we all have smartphones where I've chatted to people and I've just said, is there somewhere that you really have always wanted to go to? And the thing that has always surprised me is that most people can tell you where they've always wanted to go. And most people have never been there. And I think that's why it made such an impression on me. Because the two places I wanted to go when I looked in that atlas were Ulaanbaatar and Mandalay. And it took me a lot longer to get to Mandalay. And eventually I got there. And when I got to Ulaanbaatar, I had this small sense that my life could be the adventure that I really wanted it to be. Because I had seen this place on a map in the middle of the earth. And I had found my own way there. That's a perfect note to end on, I think. Thank you very much, Louisa, for your time today and for telling us uh, about these experiences. Hearing Birds Fly, it's a fantastic book. It's a place that meant a lot to me as well and that I've still look back on and, and think about as part, probably my best travel experience. So I hope, uh, I hope people will pick this up and read it. It's, it's such an interesting read. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. I'll probably go home and cry now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Personal Landscapes. If you like the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes and subscribe through your favorite app. You can find links to today's podcast and more conversations on Books About Place at ryanbernard.com. You'll also find a donate button if you'd like to contribute to the costs of the show. All donations are greatly appreciated. Thank you.